All right, everybody, would you please join me as we pray? Father, we uh, again come and thank you for this Christmas season, for the opportunity that we've had over the last seven weeks to look at these different passages from the prophet Isaiah written uh, thousands of years ago to uh, your people facing a very different situation from that which we face today, and yet the the power of those words remains uh, just as relevant for us today as it was for them back then. Uh, so this morning, as we spend time thinking about this last statement that your son Jesus is king, uh, would you please help us not just to hear this and think, oh, that's interesting, but Lord, to even ask how, uh, how we are following you uh, as uh, Lord Jesus, as our king. And we ask this in your name and with your grace, amen. So this is the last Sunday when we're going to be looking at these different antiphons. So just to remind you, because we talk, talked about this a while ago, the, the, an antiphon is a, a refrain or a short song that is incorporated into worship. Uh, and these seven antiphons, these seven sayings, were brought together based on prophecies that were given in the book of Isaiah. These are the different passages that we have been looking at over the last several, uh, several weeks. And the, they were brought together sometime in the 6th century. So these things are old. And more than likely in Italy, the earliest reference that we have to them is from a, a, a Christian scholar by the name of Boethius, who wrote about them at the end of the 6th century. So these things have been around for a really long time. You, If you use the prayer guide that we provided for you for Advent, they showed up in there every day. We prayed one of the different antiphons uh, as a part of that. So they've been, they've been nestled in, and you've probably been exposed to them in a variety of ways. But certainly every Christmas, if you have sung, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, you have been interacting with this string of really ancient teaching that the church has. And, and really what, what the song is trying to communicate, so it's like these are the realities of who Messiah would be. This is who Jesus is and what it is that he came to do. And that's what we've been meditating on over the course of this series. Uh, so we looked at O Emmanuel, which means God with us. We looked at, uh, let's see, remember them in order, O Sapientia, which is O Wisdom. We looked at O Adonai, O Lord. We looked at uh, O Radix Jesse, the root of Jesse. We looked at Clavis David, the key of David. We looked at Oriens, the light or the morning star. And then today we look at Rex Gentium, the king of the nations. Uh, and, and so here's my basic premise. Here's, here's what I want us to understand as we walk, as we finish this series, uh, as we walk out of here today. And really because the theme of king has been kind of woven through every single one of these things, uh, which I didn't know. You know, you never know what you're going to find when you're preaching a sermon series. You kind of have an idea when you walk into it of the general contour. And inevitably, uh, connections start being made uh, for at least for me, as I'm like preparing and like wrestling with all these passages over the course of several weeks. And the thing that really jumped out at me was how much the idea of king is central to all of these prophecies. And so what I want to suggest to you today is that the hope of the world, the hope of the world is in the arrival of a king. Now, the problem that we have is that we are Americans. 
we don't like kinks, right? We rebelled from kinks a long time ago. That's a part of our narrative. That's a part of our national identity. And if we're honest, right, the, the, uh, the cultural narrative that we have of monarchy, especially right now, is largely informed by Netflix, right? <laughs> Crown, Crown fans, right? Uh, Harry and Meghan documentary, right? Uh, and so the reality is that it can be really easy to hear the hope of the world is that the arrival of a king and through our American lens, culturally, to go, eh, okay. Um, imagine, you know, it's this week. I was having lunch this past week at a restaurant here in East Village. And um, I, I was talking to the owner and he uh, found out that I was a pastor. He says like, oh, what are you preaching on? That's not a very common question when people find out that I'm a pastor. Usually it's, oh, that's nice. And the conversation topic changes. <laughs> Uh, but this particular was like, oh, what are you preaching on? And, and I didn't say I'm preaching on how the hope of the world is in the arrival of a king. I didn't say that, right? Because that would be like, what, what are you talking about? What I said was I'm talking, we're finishing up a series on Christmas, and we're talking about how Jesus is, is the savior of the world. And that's true. We're going to talk about that today. Uh, but if you were to say to a friend, the hope of the world is in the arrival of a king, it would sound, to some, right, to some, it would sound like this kind of patriarchal regression. To others, it would sound like completely out of touch. To some, it would sound like quaint. Maybe if you've grown up in the church, you've got a category for that. But even then, right, it's hard to get out of our Americanness and really, like, sit in the reality that the hope of the world is in the arrival of a king. But that's what Isaiah wants us to understand, Isaiah wants us to understand, the scriptures want us to understand, they want us to believe the hope of the world is in the arrival of a king. So what we're going to see today out of the prophet Isaiah uh, is that uh, why we need a king, uh, who the king is, and then how this king is going to rule. And this king is not a king for a localized people, right? It's not oh, well, Great Britain needs a king. We don't, we're Americans, right? It's we all need a king. Regardless of your nationality, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your gender, regardless of your politics, uh, regardless of your socioeconomic standing, uh, we all need a king. And that's the hope of the world. So why do we need a king? Well, Isaiah begins by giving us a few, and we're not gonna just look just at Isaiah 9, we're gonna look at Isaiah 2 as well. Isaiah gives us a few hints. We're not going to look at all of them because there's a lot of them, but Isaiah gives us a few hints about why we need a king. The first is found, actually, and here's the problem. Uh, how many of you, Chronicles of Narnia, read Chronicles of Narnia, yes. The last battle, I, I will confess that that's the one that I've read the least. So it's the one that I have the least knowledge of, but I'm reading it with uh, one of my kids, right? I'm reading it with Ace, our youngest son right now. Uh, so if you don't know the story, uh, you've got this ape by the name of Shift and this donkey by the name of Puzzle. And one day a lion skin shows up and Shift, the ape, tricks Puzzle, the donkey, into wearing this lion skin and pretending to be Aslan. So if you know the story, Aslan is like the divine king. He's a lion. Um, and they start doing all these evil things. They start arresting people. They start killing people. They start knocking down trees. And in the process, they're killing the, the dryads. 
uh, and, and, and uh, even the king of Narnia is arrested and he's bound. And everybody in the first part of the story, right? And then we're only in the first part of the story, but everybody's like, I thought Aslan was going to be different. I thought Aslan was going to be different. And, and one of the great obstacles that we have uh, to understanding and believing that the hope of the world is in the arrival of a king is that we see lots of kings. We've seen lots of rulers, not just kings, but political rulers, uh, even in our own country, that are a disaster. Uh, and so we are conditioned to see the brokenness of people who are in leadership in the church and outside of the church. And there's a part of us that says, I don't know what I think about the idea that the hope of the world is in the arrival of a king. But Isaiah wants to press through that. And so this is what we see, first of all, that we live in a world that's filled with darkness. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that because Bill McCurin did a great job last week about explaining and kind of teasing out for us the theme of darkness and light in Scripture. But I do want you to just notice that it's there in verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. For those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Darkness here, as Bill pointed out last week, is, is, a, is a metaphor scripture uses to talk about the complete brokenness, all of the ways that things are wrong with the world. The second thing that we see here is domination. Uh, this is, you might be like, what, you see that in there? Actually, yes, I do. Look at verse four, if you have your Bible open or if you have the, the bulletin you're looking at. Uh, it says, in the day of Midian's defeat, you shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulder, the rod of their oppressor. Now, who, who knows what he's referring to when he says the day of Midian's defeat? Probably few of us can readily remember what scriptural story is being talked about here. But what I want you to understand is that for an Israelite, this would have been an immediate reference. Much like if today I were to say, on D-Day, at the Battle of Lexington and Concord, you may not be able to tell me everything that was going on. You may not be able to tell me all of the, all of the nuances of those battles. But if you've studied American history, right, you've heard those phrases and there's a cultural value attached to them. Oh, those are moments where we were fighting against insurmountable odds. For an Israelite to hear in the day of Midian's defeat, in their mind, they're going back to Judges 6, 7, and 8, where the Midianites had come in and, as you see in the passage, right, their burden, there was a yoke, across, bar across their shoulder, the rod, the oppressors, they were, the Midianites were eating the food, they were moving people around, they were enslaving people. And God raises up a judge by the name of Gideon, and Gideon gets his army together. And God says, you have too many soldiers. We need to fix that. And so the army size decreases. And he does that a second time. All says when, the, when it's actually time for the Israelites to go into battle against this large foreign invader, they go to battle with 300 people. 300. Against an army of what we probably think is thousands. 300, and they won. And so here is this moment where he's saying, remember D-Day? Remember the Battle of Lexington and Concord? He's saying, remember Midian's defeat? Remember how God 
broke the rod of your oppressors, the king that is coming is going to break the rod of your oppressors. We live in a world of oppression, right? We live in a world where there is all kinds of evil. And we live in a world where there is division. That's what you see in the Isaiah 2 passage, right? Where it says that they're going to beat their swords into plowshares. These, these different nations are going to come in. All these things that divided them are going to be dealt with. They're going to go away. That's what we sang in the, in the verse this morning. O king, O come, O king of nations, bind in one the hearts of all mankind. Bid all our sad divisions cease and be yourself our king of peace. It's a lovely Christmas carol, isn't it? But isn't that what we need right now? Like, really, think about it. Like, what? Not the world. Forget the world. It's the United States. Just our country. Our country needs someone to come in and bring reconciliation over the deep divisions that exist. I could start throwing words out, phrases out, and, and everyone's going, right? You get the hair on the back of your neck is going to start going up. And that's the reality of the world that we live in. Just think about war. Let's think about war. That's a kind of a benign topic, right? War is bad. I think we all agree on that. So if you, if you classify war as an armed conflict in which a thousand people or more have been killed, that was one definition. I was kind of looking, I was like, how many wars are happening in the world right now? So I forget who, but somebody has defined a war as an armed conflict in which a thousand or more people have been killed. There are 20 wars happening in the world right now. 20. That is, I don't know why I'm surprised that the number is that high, but it's 20. Ukraine, we know that one, right? Uh, uh, Congo, we know that one because our missionaries, the forests, have told us about that. Nigeria, Ethiopia, Myanmar, the list goes on and on, right? And then on top of that, if you're reading the news, just I think it was this past week that I read of two more stories of, uh, of uh, I think this time it was two men that were executed in Iran over the protests. And that's just the stuff happening on the other side of the world. Uh, we just had Mark pray about needs in our own city. And we do that on a regular basis, right? Homelessness, foster care, human trafficking, refugees, immigrants. Just, I was thinking this morning, I was reading in the news, President Biden is in El Paso. And part of the story, they were talking about uh, ref, uh, uh, immigrants who are at this church praying for change in U.S. immigration law so that they can start coming into the country legally. We live in a world that is broken. We live in a world of darkness, of domination, and division. We need somebody. And everybody has an answer for what the solution is. Everybody has a solution. Everyone thinks this. Oh, no, the answer is this. The answer is this political party. The answer is this policy. The answer is this. The answer is that. Christianity says the hope of the world is in the arrival of a king. Who is the king? That's our second point. The verse says, verse 6 says, for unto us a child is born. That's like Christmas 101, right? Handel's Messiah. Who's a fan of Handel's Messiah? Come on. Yeah, I see all these people, I know this, right? For unto us a son is born. 
unto, no, I'm sorry, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, right? Uh, I should have had Chad come up and do that part. Um, it's, it's absolutely central to the Christmas story, these words, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now, when a king is crowned in the modern world, and, and again, think of our kind of our point of reference would be King Charles now, right? Part of the process is that they have to determine what's the royal name by which you're going to go. So you remember when the queen died, one of the articles that was out is, what's Charles going to call himself? And he's going to call himself King Charles. Well, in the ancient world, it was not uncommon for other people to ascribe regal names to the monarchs. Uh, and so what's happening here in Isaiah is that this child that's going to be born is being given four royal titles. And these four royal titles are indicative of the kind of king that this child was going to be. This child will be wonderful counselor. He will be mighty God. He will be everlasting father. And he will be prince of peace. These are royal titles that are being given to this Monarch. These are his regal names. And, and today, right, is the first Sunday after Epiphany. I already alluded to this earlier, right? Today is the first Sunday after the day in which we celebrate that this king was not just the king of the Israelite nation. He's not just, uh, he's culturally a Jewish king because he's culturally a Jewish individual, but, but he's not just a Jewish king politically, Geopolitically, this is the king of many nations. And that's actually uh, woven into the story of Matthew 2. There's this Christianity Today article that I read this past uh, Christmas. Uh, It was talking about a new book that's published, which looks really, really interesting. The title of the article was called We Three Kings. I don't remember the title of the book, but it was an interview style of of, uh, article. And, and they were talking about this particular passage. So I'm going to read, I read to you when we did the giving talk, I, I read you the second part. Let me read you the first part of Matthew 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, uh, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who was born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So what I didn't know, what I read in the article and found really fascinating is that, um, in, in, that there was a, a, a kind of a cultural value assigned to stars. Uh, so kind of think of it like this. Actually, what, what, what ended up happening was Julius Caesar was, there was a star that allegedly appears after Julius Caesar dies. So Julius Caesar is the Caesar before the time of Christ, okay? So there's the star that appears at the time of Caesar's death, and that star is used to assign to Julius Caesar the status of a deity. Uh, So Caesar Augustus is the Caesar at the time that Jesus was born. Remember, in the time of Caesar Augustus, there was no room for them in the end of that passage. Um, Caesar Augustus uses, he calls himself son of God. And do you know what he does? He puts the the star on the money. So every time you stuck your hand in your pocket or your bag or whatever it is you happen to keep your money, right? 
and you took out a coin and you saw that star, you were reminded. What are you? So, quarter, who's on the quarter? Who's Washington? Right? You, like, you can start rattling off all kinds of things about George Washington because there's a cultural value assigned to the image on the coin. Who's on the penny? Who's Abraham Lincoln? Exactly. There's a cultural value assigned to the image on the coin. In Rome, they had a star. And that star said, royalty. Caesar is king and Caesar is God. And here comes the story. And these magi coming from another part of the world and it's like, hey, we saw this star and we're here to see about a king. And Herod and the people in Herod's court would have had to have gone, oh no. This is not good. So part of Herod's, I, I'm, I wonder, I don't know this, but I wonder if part of the reason why Herod is so quick to start killing babies is not just because he was himself threatened, but because he realized there are significant political ramifications of words of this gets out. Matthew's birth narrative is a political statement as much as it is a story about devotion and worship. Is it a statement? Because it follows right on the heels of the genealogy in chapter one, right? And in the genealogy of chapter one, goes into the specificity of saying that David is not just David, but that he is King David. So make no mistake about it. The gospel account in Matthew wants you to understand that Jesus is a king. For unto us a child is born. That child is Jesus. So we see why we need a king, because we live in a world of dominion, darkness, and division. We see who that king is. That king is Jesus. How is that king going to rule? Well, in the face of darkness, he's going to bring light. I'm not going to go into that. Bill did that last week. But I will just kind of point to two passages of Scripture, right? John 1, 1 says, In him was life, and that life was the light of men, of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in, but will have the light of life. So Jesus is the king that brings light. He is light to drive the darkness away. But secondly, we see that Jesus is the king who brings an end to domination of evil. And he is a king that brings unity in the face of peace, or uh, unity in the face of division. Uh, verse 7, of the greatness, so we have those royal titles. What's, what's, uh, what's going to happen out of that? Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time forth and forevermore. So this king is going to rule in such a way that justice and righteousness will be integral to his kingdom. That, that they will be part and part. They're just, that's going to be exactly what it is that everyone is going to uh, see is the reality of his kingdom. 
Do you remember when Jesus preached his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount? He said this. He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be, do you remember the word? Satisfied. There there are two things about that that are really fascinating. One, Jesus acknowledges that there is in the human heart a longing for things to be different than they are. And secondly, that there is satisfaction to be found for those who have that longing, that there's actually an answer. There's actually some way that you're going to be have satisfaction over that longing. There's a, an African-American priest uh, and a New Testament scholar by the name of Esau McCulley. He wrote a book a few years ago called Reading. This is a great title. Um, Reading While Black. African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. It's a really good book, by the way. And this is what he says about this passage. He says, the messianic son of David, this is heavy, so I'm going to read it slowly. He's making a really profound statement here, and I don't have a slide to show it to you. Uh, The messianic son of David, as an agent of God's will, would be known for establishing justice on the earth. To hunger for justice in a messianic context is to long for God to establish his just rule over the earth through his chosen king. Righteousness or justice then is inescapably political. Hungering for justice is hungering for the kingdom. He's saying that the way God works in the world is through a king and that that is a political statement that there are political ramifications, that that governments will be overturned because of this reality, and that when there is a hungering and thirsting and longing for righteousness by the people of God, that what they are longing for, the thing that's inside of us that we're longing for, is a king. That's the hope of the world. The hope of the world is in a king. And so we pray for the king, 20 wars around the world. We pray for the king who comes, and when he comes, what happens to swords? They're beaten into plowshares. You see that? That's the hope that our king brings. The hope that our king brings is that that one day wars will cease. Amen. Right? We, We pray for a king, we long for a king, that will see the brokenness of our world and people who are living on the street will be brought into a kingdom where Jesus said, in my father's house, depending on what version you want to use. Let's go King James, because King James sounds really cool, right? In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told thee. I go to prepare a house for thee. That's the king that we long for, isn't it? for uh, in our lives, right? We, we, this week, you're going to go, many of you, right? You're going to go uh, work somewhere. You're going to go volunteer somewhere. You're going to be in your home uh, and you're going to interact with other people, uh, whether you're working in the home or out of the home, whatever field, whatever industry you happen to be working in, laboring in, wherever God has called you to serve him at this particular stage of your life, 
trying to be as broad as I can, so hit all of you, because I'm talking to all of us right now, right? You're going to face brokenness. You're going to face longings of your own heart, right? The things that you wish were not the way that they are. Uh, you're going to see that in other people. Uh, you're going you're gonna to experience, uh, in, uh, you're going to see the ways in which your particular uh, the places where you inhabit, right? The brokenness of those places, the ways in which they pervert the will of God, they pervert the justice of God. And so here's the thing, that we're not just called to have a longing for it, but then Jesus also, as ambassadors of his kingdom, Jesus also calls us to be the front line of where that kingdom is seen. Right, that, that we labor in, we work in, we serve Jesus in the redemptive edge of his kingdom. The place where light is moving out and darkness is being driven away. The place where div- domination is being exposed and peace is coming in. The place where divisions are being reconciled and unity is being built. That's where you and I serve Jesus. So you might be here this morning, you might be like, this crazy Puerto Rican pastor that we have, he still has a Christmas tree up. What is going on? Um, but what I wanna what I want to tell you is this that epiphany, when everybody else, are you who's been to Target yet? Valentine's Day, St. Patrick's Day. They've already got St. Patrick's Day up. I saw a Guinness t-shirt. Right? The culture is like, we're done with Christmas. Let's move on. Epiphany says, hit the brakes. Hit the brakes. What you need more than anything is the very thing that God provided for you on that Christmas day. And God in his wisdom determined that these magi from somewhere in the East would show up and make a political statement about the reality of who the true king of the world is. And they would bring this king their gifts And in so doing, bring to fulfillment a prophecy that was spoken thousands of years before by a prophet that one day there would be a king and the nations would come to this king. Church, you're here. The very fact that that Harbor City Church exists, the very fact that you are sitting in this room is a testimony to the fact that Jesus is the king of the nations. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father in heaven, we thank you for your king, King Jesus. Uh, You are the one who has been seated at the right hand of the Father. Uh, To you belongs all power and majesty. The New Testament epistles tell us that that God has placed all things under your feet. We acknowledge, Lord, that you are king. 
Help us uh, to live as citizens of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.